Well, beloved, uh, this has certainly been an eventful week. Uh, I woke up uh, Friday morning, had my breakfast, like many of you, and received the news uh, flash on my, uh, on my cell phone, right, that the Supreme Court of the United States had ruled in the case before them with regard to the legalization of homosexual marriage, actually, basically, for the overruling of state statutes to define marriage. And now there is a federal statute that says that homosexual marriage is now the law of the land. And I've been praying, uh, had been praying about the outcome of that court and uh, certainly not the decision that uh, we would want to have. And so as I uh, I received that news, I thought to myself, I don't think I can just go into the pulpit on Sunday morning and uh, continue to preach my series in Matthew. I had done all the work through the week, had written the sermon manuscript that was all ready to go. So uh, next week, uh, it'll be there. But I thought this week we need to do something different. So I'd I'd like to talk to you this morning. I'd like to talk to you this morning and... And I'd like to talk to you about maintaining our equilibrium. Maintaining our equilibrium in a world that seems a bit topsy-turvy. The sun has set and risen again twice since Friday. And what that means is that God is still on his throne. And in that we find great comfort, great hope. My wife reminded me this morning of uh, Psalm 73. The 73rd Psalm, the uh, psalmist speaks about the discouragement and despair that was coming over him as he looked upon the society in which he lived and in which evil was running rampant. And he was very discouraged by all of that. But he says in Psalm 73 that when he went into the house of the Lord, he became re-centered, as it were. He understood the end of evil and evil men, that the wicked will not prosper forever. And there is a time and a place that was in the nation of Israel. I think there's certainly a time and a place in world history in which those who are in opposition to God appear to have the upper hand. But it will not be that way forever. God is still on his throne. We need to come to the word of God to receive stability, our our equilibrium in a world that is topsy-turvy. So Friday, I was praying and driving and thinking as to what to say to you. I'm If you're a social media person, you've already been inundated with all of the people with their commentary and some very fine things have been written. And I certainly don't pretend that I operate at their level as some sort of cultural commentator. So I'm not going to try to add anything profound on top of what has already been said. Instead, what I'd like to do is just to um, remind us of some things this morning. So Friday, as I was driving around and and doing my errands and praying and asking for the Lord's help in coming before you this morning to speak, I thought about four words. And that's what I'd like to do this morning, is I'd like to speak to you a little bit under four words. That's our outline. Four simple words. The first word is rebellion. The first word is is rebellion because we live in a world that is in rebellion against its creator and that shouldn't surprise us because within our own heart we know that there is even for a follower of christ there is a tug of war going on between our allegiance to christ and our allegiance to self this rebellion began in the beginning right you, you go back to the book of Genesis, and I'll invite you to turn there. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 follows Genesis chapter 2. 
told you I'm not going to add anything profound to what has been said. Genesis chapter 2 ends there with the first wedding. God has created man and woman in his image. He created woman from the side of Adam because it was not good for the man to be alone. And he brought her to Adam in that very first marriage ceremony. Beloved, we cannot lose sight of the fact that, that marriage is God's creation. It's his idea. It's his good gift to mankind established back in antiquity in those very first people made in his image. And it ends in chapter 2 that they were both the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And it's just a, a wonderful picture. But there are storm clouds on the horizon If we could have been there to witness that first wedding ceremony, it would have been a wonderful, beautiful occasion. But at the same time, in distance, we would have seen these dark clouds forming. If it were a Hollywood movie, the the soundtrack would change. And you would sense that there's there's something bad going to happen. And indeed, when we get to chapter 3, that's exactly what happens, right? We get to chapter 3. And there in verse 1, we read the serpent, who is more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made, he says to the woman, and this is the point, has God said? Has God said? Immediately, he calls into question the veracity of the word of God. Is God true? Can he be trusted? Is he believable? Does he have our best interests at heart? Has God said? Eve should have turned and run, but she didn't. And she entered into, she fell into that trap, didn't she? And there in that that ancient time, that ancient event, The word of God was called into open question. Mankind, created by God from the the clay, from the dust of the ground, in the image of God, chose to, to set themselves up as one who would evaluate their creator. To decide, is God to be trusted? Is God's word true? Is God withholding from us something good, some pleasure that we have to have? The very act, the very act of entering into that kind of thought process, beloved, is rebellion. It is rebellion, and it can lead nowhere but to death. And that's exactly what happens. She takes... She eats, she gives to her husband with her, and he eats. And when he eats, he plunges himself and his posterity. That is the human race. We all come from that first couple. We are a a human race. Oh, we sit here this morning and we have some interesting differences externally. Our skin colors are a little bit different. Our eye colors are a little bit different. Uh, some of us, are, our ears are larger or smaller or our hair is straight or curly or um, not there anymore. Or... <laughs> all right, we've got all kinds of external differences, but, but we are part of the human race. We are, we are descendants of Adam and Eve. And when Adam fell, we fell with him. We fell with him. And the race was plunged into rebellion. And that's where we've been ever since. There has been a long war against God. The long war. Satan's, uh, he's, not, uh, he's not inventive. He doesn't come up with new ways to attack Oh, we might dress him up in a new coat of paint, put a new set of clothes on it perhaps, but it's always the same. It is always to call into question the word of God. 
to sow in the heart of people a doubt in the sufficiency of the scriptures, in the kindness and goodness of God, in the wisdom of our creator, in the certainty of judgment for those who would look him in the face and say, no, thank you, I'll be my own God. The world lives in rebellion because we live in rebellion. And that takes me to my next thought under the heading of rebellion, and that shoots me over to Psalm 2. Psalms chapter 2. Rebellion doesn't just remain an individual thing. Rebellion is a societal problem. A societal problem. Because societies are, are nothing but collections of rebellious people. So it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us. In the second psalm, we read, in beginning in verse 1, and for this, I'll, I'll revert to, to, the, to the King James language, or I think the ESV says it this way as well, at least the beginning. Why do the nations rage? Why do the nations rage? And the peoples devise vain things. Kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us why do the nations rage why do human governments set themselves up in opposition to the king to rage and and protest against him to say we will not have this man rule over us we will not submit to god let us tear off the boundaries pull apart the cords let us free ourselves from the constraints of this king this divine king let us determine for ourselves what is morality what are ethics what is right and what is wrong what we will do and what we will not do so the kings of the earth take their stand together against god and against his messianic king. And that's exactly what's going on. We live in a day, in an age, when our, when our leaders, our kings, as it were, are doing exactly that. They are merely manifesting the rebellion that exists within the human heart. This is not God's nation. We are not the ancient people of Israel somehow recapitulated. We have no special covenant with God. Do we have Christian foundations in the, in the original founding of this country? We do. We do. But beloved, as a people, as a nation, we have jettisoned them a very, very long time ago. A very long time ago. It should not surprise us. It should not surprise us. Rebellion. And that leads me to my second thought this morning, and that is redemption. Redemption. Oh, how I love that word. Redemption. But beloved, without that, there would be nothing for us but a certain and terrifying judgment. One cannot rebel against one's creator and get away with it. I guess it's from the recent hot weather, but we've been having some problems with ants in our home. I don't particularly like ants. They're okay outdoors. I don't like them in my home, and I don't like them on my kitchen counter when I wake up in the morning. They are in rebellion against me. 
And so when I walk out into the kitchen in the morning and I turn the light on and I see two or three of them there, I take my tip of my finger and I squash their rebellion. (laughs) Just like that. Just like that. Beloved, God is so much greater the difference, the, 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 the separation between God and his creation is infinitely greater than the separation between me and an ant. If God were to merely pour out his justice upon this world, upon me, upon you, he would crush you crush you and there would be nothing you could do but God in his great mercy in his great love for his creation is an extension of of the character of who he is the triune God who exists eternally in loving relationship father son and spirit has chosen out of his mercy and grace to open up that relationship to us and to invite us to partake of what it means to love. But he has to deal with the rebellion. He has to deal with the rebellion. And so he dealt with it in the most awful, in the most glorious way imaginable. Yea, it defies imagination. While we were yet sinners, you finish it for me. I can't hear you. Christ died for us. Christ died for us. God sent his own son into this world. To live the life we cannot live. To die the death that we deserve. To shatter the power of sin and death in his resurrection. And then to turn and to willingly share that life with us. To invite us. To join in. To the fellowship. To the love. of Father, Son, and Spirit. To take up residence within us in the person of His Holy Spirit. That we might have the life of God in our own soul. That, by the way, is called the gospel. It's called the gospel. The word means good news. And that is indeed good news, don't you think? People don't think it's so good. They don't want to hear it as good. But it's good news. What we could never do, God did. And he offers it freely. Freely. To any who will receive. You don't have to clean up your act. Not that you could. Someone once said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. God sets his love upon us. God does what we could never do. The first chapter of Romans, I direct you there. Chapter 1, Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Beginning in verse 15. Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
Did you get that? I am eager to preach the gospel, he says. I, I am pumped. I am stoked. I, am, I cannot wait to come to Rome and to preach the gospel to you. Why? Why? Verse 16. For, if you like, because... For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul is fired up. He's excited about coming to Rome and to preach the gospel to them there in Rome and from them to move on even to Spain, he says later, and to be helped on my way there by you that I might preach the gospel there too because I want to go where people have never been to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. It is the answer To man's hopeless predicament. The first three chapters of Paul's letter to the church at Rome lay out in in meticulous in a meticulous way. It's like it's like a prosecuting attorney building their case, argument upon argument, evidence upon evidence. Until at the end, there is none righteous, no, not one, right? All are under conviction. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All deserve his eternal condemnation. There is no hope. Enter the gospel. Enter the gospel. Why are you so eager to preach the gospel, Paul? Because it is the answer. It is the very power of God. Beloved, it is the power of God that brought this whole creation into existence. That's what we're talking about. We're talking the the power of the triune God who spoke and it existed. And he brought this universe into existence by by his word. It is that same word of the gospel that is the power of God to save. And that's the kind of power it takes. Because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not just Mostly dead. We're dead. We're dead. And dead people don't respond. But God in his love takes the initiative. The spirit of God opens the eyes of the blind. He brings life to the dead heart when they hear the word of the gospel. And they are regenerated to new life. This is the power of God. Have you experienced it? Have you experienced the power of God? be brought to life. So often we doubt its power. So often we need, we think we need to give it a boost. We need to supercharge it a little bit. We need to dress it up. I mean, the message is, it's like foolishness to our sophisticated culture. Gee, it was foolishness in Paul's day too. The powerful of this world, they don't want to hear this. This is death, resurrection, the power of God. What are you talking about? 
so we try to make it better. We try to improve it. The temptation is, is always close at hand for us. Always. I feel it. You feel it. Your mouth gets a little dry. A few butterflies in your stomach. You swallow hard a couple times. You're in a conversation there and somebody is, is pontificating all of their worldly wisdom and they seem so erudite and so sophisticated and so convinced and you're standing there stammering and you're thinking, okay, when am I going to say something? When am I going to say something? When am I going to say something? <laughs> and you blurt out the gospel. And you wonder, Really? Is that the power of God? Has God said? Beloved, we need to be committed to this. We need to be committed to this truth. It is the power of God. There is no other for the salvation of the human soul. There is no salvation in any other name. We need to become proficient with this. Yeah, but maybe maybe that was then and this is now. And the problems that that we face today are, are, they're just beyond what could have been comprehended back then. I mean, they didn't know about uh, same-sex attraction and, and uh, sexual orientation and people are born in certain ways and, and, um, and women are trapped in men's bodies and men are trapped in women's bodies and, and black people are trapped in white people's bodies and, and on and on it goes. I mean, we laugh because it's silly, but it's sad. This is, where, this is where we've gotten to. Because we have jettisoned as a, as, a, as a culture the one source of truth. We think we came here, we, we crawl out of some primordial soup. I was speaking with a man recently, an educated man was attempting to tell me that, that selfishness originates because the, the, the egg is bigger than the sperm and it, in that first cell when it, when it divided and so forth and, and therefore because the egg was larger it needed more nutrients and, and that's the origin of selfishness. And I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, man. <laughs> He's educated. A college professor. Because he can't see. He can't see. Nor can he account for the realities by which he has to live his life. But I digress. Maybe there is just some things that are too difficult for the gospel. So I'm, uh, I'm brought over to 1 Corinthians 6. And beginning in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, isn't that an interesting question to ask? Do not be deceived. The apostle Paul says, do not be deceived. Then I guess we need to grant the possibility that one could be deceived, don't you think? Do not be deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither fornicators, 
That's those that engage in sexual behavior outside of the covenant boundary of marriage, one man and one woman. Nor idolaters, that is those who would seek to worship the creation rather than the creator. Nor adulterers, that would be those who engage in sexual behavior outside in a marriage covenant and then engage outside of that marriage covenant. That's adultery, right? Fornication is sexual activity between two individuals who are not married. Adultery is sexual activity by one or the other partner outside of the marriage covenant, right? Adultery. Nor effeminate. Effeminate. The idea that that those particularly men who seek to, to act and behave as a woman. That is the effeminate. Nor homosexuals. That is those who engage in sexual behavior with one of the same sex. Men with men, women with women. Nor thieves. That's people who steal. Nor the covetous. That is those who, who have a, a, an intense passion and longing for that which is not theirs. Nor drunkards. Drunkards. Those are people who engage in the consumption of alcoholic beverages, and I would, by extension, say uh, pharmaceuticals, to the extent which they are so controlled by them that they now become identified with the sin. If one gets drunk, it does not make one a drunkard. But if the course and practice of one's life is characterized by drunkenness, by getting drunk, then one becomes a drunkard. Do not be deceived, Paul says. Drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Nor revilers. That's those that shake their fist in God's face. Nor swindlers, fast talkers, those who who try to cheat people out of their possessions. None of them shall inherit the kingdom of God. But how I love verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. Can you imagine when this letter arrived at the church at Corinth and they read it for the first time in a public gathering of the church? And they're reading all these things and people are looking around. You know, they look across the aisle there and there's, there's a Joe and Joe used to be a drunkard. <laughs> right? We shouldn't assume that the congregation had no, no knowledge of who was engaged in these kinds of behaviors. I think they knew very well. And then he says, such were some of you. Meaning, you're not that anymore. You're not that anymore. For you were washed. For you were sanctified. That is, you were set apart. You were justified. You were made right in the sight of God, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in the spirit of our God. Now, that doesn't mean some of the struggles immediately went away, to be sure. They were flesh and blood people like you and I are flesh and blood people. And they struggled and they fought against their sin. And they slipped and fell and they would get back up. And some of them never get back up. But he says, such were some of you. It's not who you are anymore. There has been the most profound transformation that has occurred in your life. Redemption. If any man be in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old things are gone. Behold, new things have come or all things have been made new. How do you like it? Right? There has been a very real dramatic transformation. 
We have gone from being united with Adam in his sin and rebellion to now being united with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We have once had the life of death within our soul. We now have the life of God. It's that dramatic. It's that dramatic. And that power, that power overcomes patterns of sin. Beloved, this is the gospel message. This is the news of redemption. This is what we have to offer a world. It takes me to my third word. The problem without uh, notes is you don't know how long things take. My third word is realization. Rebellion, redemption, realization. We need to realize that we are in a new place. In one sense, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. And in another sense, everything has changed. Our culture, our culture, our society, our nation has been at war with God for a very long time. Some have realized that reality and others have been merrily going their way. Check the balance of your 401k once a quarter, right? Make the mortgage payment, feed the kids, go to a soccer practice, whatever it is, and life goes on. And then we wake up and we go, how did all this happen? We need to realize, beloved, that our culture has been spiraling downward for a very long time. A very long time. This, this recent legal decision in which five black-robed individuals from on high now make this decree has been coming for a long time. Five decades ago, they decreed that a baby in a mother's womb was not a human life that needed to be protected. We've had five decades of, of politics where one politician after another has, has said, vote for me and I'll set you free, right? We'll turn this thing back. Beloved, not a chance. This culture is going down, and I would suggest to you that all that has happened now is that it's out in the open to see. If you couldn't see it before, you can see it now. Let me read to you from the first chapter of Romans again, beginning in verse 18. I'm going to read it here because there probably will come a time when, when I read it, I, there may be someone carry me away. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 through the end of the chapter, is not a description. Listen to me carefully. This is not a description of an individual's descent into sin. This is the deep, dark descent of man. I can't remember how many sermons I preached under that title. It was like part whatever. Some of you said, can you stop? so depressing until we understand how bad it is we don't understand how good the gospel is but what Paul describes here is the, is the destruction of a culture not an individual but a culture for the wrath of God he said is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, 
being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They worshiped bugs rather than the creator. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. To do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That is an indictment of America. It's an indictment of America. And that list is long. And the dragnet is big. And it sweeps us all up in it. We have arrived at a place in our culture where people not only do what they know to be wrong, but they encourage others to join them in their sin. The book of Proverbs, that's the scoffer. That's the individual in the book of Proverbs who is called the scoffer. And there is no hope for the scoffer. Our culture, our nation has spiraled down. There is no history of a land, of a nation, of a people who come back from this. But one. And that would be God's agent people, Israel. And they haven't come back yet. But when a nation sets themselves against God in this way, when a nation calls good evil and evil good, they have descended into the depths of depravity for which as a nation, as a culture, there is no recovery. The second realization, I think, is what I'm calling casualties. So the realizations, culture, casualties. There are casualties of sin. Casualties of sin. Notice in verse 27 here, Paul says, men with men committing indecent acts. And then notice this clause, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. There are casualties for sin. Listen, God created this universe and he established certain physical natural laws. All right? Things like gravity. And you can, you can rage against them. You can say you don't believe in them. You can say they're wrong, they're unfair. They're biased. They, they restrict my pleasure. They, express, they, they restrict my, my exercise of, of my, you know, prerogatives. 
And he didn't go up and jump off the building. But gravity wins. It always wins. Oh, you might defy it for a very short time if you jump off a high enough building, I suppose. But in the end, gravity always wins. God has created this universe with, with moral law. It is baked into this universe. It is an expression of the character of its creator. You can no more defy the moral law of God and expect to escape the consequences someday than you could throw yourself off the parapet of this building. So there are casualties. Some here and now, all eternally, They receive in themselves the due penalty of their error. Listen, there are people broken by this defiance of God, this rebellion of God. In particular, this morning in the area of human sexuality. There are casualties, and there are going to be more. There are going to be more. There are going to be more and more broken people. More and more children who come from homes that are really messed up. We are only beginning to reap what we have sowed. And this is where we come in. You see, we we operate a rescue mission. This is a lighthouse We go down to the surf, as it were, and pull out the people who are being smashed against the rocks. We bring them the life-changing news of the gospel. Now that means that we need to look changed, right? We need to be changed. When it comes to the realm of marriage, we need to live a distinctly Christian marriage. And we need to have a, we need to have a distinctly Christian sexual ethic that is going to become increasingly bizarre to our families and our neighbors and our coworkers. We know what marriage is about. We know why it exists. We know the ultimate reality that it portrays of Christ and his church. We know what the proper sexual ethic is. We know what God has created and God has intended for our pleasure. And we have an incredible opportunity to put that on display. But listen, shame on us. Shame on us because we have also, to some degree, treated marriage very casually. We have allowed it to be defined as love. I fall in love, I fall out of love. Listen, if marriage is about love, then there is no boundaries for marriage. You can marry your teacup. Marriage is not about love. Oh, there is love in marriage. It should be. Marriage is a covenant commitment between a man and a woman. It is a commitment of mutual companionship and sexual exclusivity given by God in the beginning of time. We need to recapture that vision. Our marriage ceremonies need to be distinctly Christian. Our marriages need to be distinctly Christian. When we have opportunity to speak around the water cooler, we need to talk about marriage from a a Christian point of view. We need to root it in the scriptures. We need to be willing to be thought foolish. 
Because for those who the Lord in his mercy and grace chooses to open their eyes, they will receive the truth. That leads me to change. You guys aren't going anywhere, are you? Lock the doors. (laughs) Change under realization. Things are going to change. Things are going to change. I don't know what the change is going to be. I mean, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. But I can tell you this, that it it would not surprise me at all. This is the, the, the press, the push to drive the word of God from the public square will continue unabated. In fact, it will only accelerate. It will only accelerate. If you think that this was what it was about, was the legalization of homosexual marriage, I think you're very naive. This is just the beginning. We will be driven from the public square. We will pay a price for our foolishness. We need to be committed to paying that price. Listen, it may cost you a job promotion. It may cost you your job. If you're a a business owner, it may cost you To take a biblical stand on marriage. In the classroom, it's going to cost you. It may cost you a grade. It may cost you a class. It may cost you in your home, in your family, among your friends, among your co-workers. It may cost us in in our ability to even meet like this. I don't think it's a big stretch to... To think that the, that the day is not coming when the gospel will be considered hate speech and, 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 and counter to public policy and public good. And those who persist in it will begin to feel the sanctions of the state. Those sanctions will probably be economic first. What price are we willing to pay? Where is our citizenship? Where is our home? Now, there could be a a temptation to to say, we need to run away from this thing. Let us retreat into our fortress. Let us build our walls twice as high. Beloved, we cannot withdraw. We cannot withdraw. We are a pilgrim people. We are, a, we are strangers. We, we are here on a mission. We have been sent to make disciples and to suffer if necessary in the process. Reminded of a, of a quote that is attributed to Martin Luther. He says, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. And what he meant was, is that I've been put here for for a purpose, and part of that purpose is the betterment of society and and humanity. So even if the whole thing's going to burn, I'm going to emulate God, and I'm going to stay engaged right up to the last minute. So we need to plant our apple trees. We need to scatter the seed. And finally, that takes me to the final word, reconciliation. Rebellion, redemption, realization, and reconciliation. Eschatology, that's a big word. End times. Boy, you want to get people to come to a Bible study? Just tell them you're going to study the book of Revelation. They'll show up. Everybody wants to know the details. Listen, about a third of the scripture, prophetic, deals with the end. Uh, we are shortly going to be into the Lord, unless he, if he doesn't tear, if he tarries, said that the right way. We're going to be into Matthew 24 and 25. We're going to get there, I promise you. We're going to talk about some of those things. 
I preached a series a number of years ago, like six months, called Things to Come. It's available on our website, I believe. But in the midst of all of this, you know, I, I circle back to Psalm 73, right? The psalmist, he, he needed to come into the house of the Lord and to, and to be centered again and to realize the end of the wicked. And that the righteous will ultimately triumph. And that's what the book of Revelation communicates to us. Jesus is coming again. Amen? He's coming again. The Lord says to my Lord, Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting, waiting until the Father is done in the fullness of time. And he will come. And he will sit on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem in the temple of the ancient people. And he will dispense justice. And war will be brought to an end. And famine will end. And injustice will end. And disease will be banished. And sin will be so severely restricted. And he will reign and he will rule for a thousand years. And that's just a drop in the bucket. That's just a down payment on eternity. And we, as his people, will reign and rule with him. It is our hope. Our home is not in this world. We are looking for the city, right, whose maker and builder is God. There is a great reconciliation coming, beloved. When this world will be remade and the wicked will no longer prosper. But until that time, until that time, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have taught you and lo, I am with you, right, always. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. We pray, O oh Lord, as we get a glimpse of what you're about, that you would calm our hearts and overcome our fears. Help us to be a people on mission. Oh, Lord, we lament what has happened in our nation. We lament the trajectory that our nation has been on for quite a long time and, and the acceleration with which it's being pursued. But, Father, we do not hate. We weep. We weep for the men and the women and the boys and the girls who are trapped in their sin as we were once trapped. We know our Father from our own experience that the ravages of sin are vicious. That when people think they can have pleasure outside of you, that they are on a fool's errand. Oh Lord, fill our hearts with compassion. Help us to respond to those who are rejoicing even on Monday morning. We will meet people at the office who will rejoice in this and think it's the greatest thing going. Oh, Lord, give us compassion for them. For they are lost. For they are blind. For they cannot see. And give us courage to stand on the word of God. We ask in Jesus' name.
Amen.